Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. you heard Dustin's sick. I don't know if you mentioned that earlier. I got here a little bit late. Um, I was coaching softball with my girls, and so just kind of ran over here real fast. Um, and so um, Dustin's sick, so I, you got me. Sorry, you're stuck with me. It, but um, I love, Andrew, just how you mentioned just that Dustin's one of the pastors. I love getting to serve with Dustin. So my name is Adam. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, there's four pastors, and Dustin's one of those. And so I just love um, just working with him. Um, he was one of my college students years ago, and it's just Amazing to watch him and Courtney now just lead uh, this group and seeing many of many of you just uh, it, it's just a joy and um, my wife and I we uh, we love campus ministry we we met at Marshall when we were students um, and we got married in 2005 and then since 2005 uh, we've had a kid every odd year so 2007 we had our first child and every odd year since 2007 except for 2019 we got a dog. And then we went back to having a child in 2021. So we have seven kids. Um, we have uh, four girls, three boys, and uh, love it. Just love being a dad. I love um, just my kids being around college students. Uh, you guys are amazing. Uh, my wife and I, we just love campus ministry. Um, we believe out of all the ministries done in a church, uh, campus ministry is our favorite. It, it's, it's the best. And um, I love getting to speak with college students. I, I think you guys are a powerful weapon for God's kingdom. Um, I think a lot of people overlook you guys. Uh, they don't think um, you guys can do much. Um, I, I just think um, the opposite. I think God used your generation to do some incredible things. If you study missionaries, a lot of missionaries were your age when they did great things. Um, and so I just think you're, you're bold still. Um, and, and I just love that you're not like, uh, once you get married, start having kids, like, you, you, you lose some of that. And, and so I just challenge you, like, don't, like, fight for that boldness. Like, keep it that zeal. Um, don't let, like, security. That's what a lot of your parents and, you know, like me, like, I battle. Like, we want security and comfort. So fight that. You guys are amazing. Um, I, I know that so much happens over your four years or five or six or seven years of college. Um, I'd be one of you. I, I was a super senior a couple times. Uh, <laughs> um, but I, I love watching freshmen, just how much you guys grow. I think probably that freshman, the sophomore year, I see the most growth in you guys. Like, it's really, for a lot of you, it's when you own your own faith for the first time. Maybe that's your story. Like, you kind of grew up in church, but it's kind of your parents' faith. But now, like, it's yours. Like, you've kind of owned it. And so I just love watching how much you guys grow, but there, there is a big difference between a senior and a freshman. Like, there's just some things that seniors have mastered that you freshmen, like, you just haven't quite figured out yet. Uh, like, for example, a good nap, right? You seniors, like, you've learned the beauty of a nap, right? Uh, some of you plan your entire day around, like, when you're going to take that nap. Um, but freshmen, you're still trying to, like, you're just so... Um, uh, 
excited and you try to be involved in everything. And so like you, you just don't like quite appreciate the good nap yet. And uh, you're afraid you might miss out on some fun. But, but seniors, you kind of have figured out what's really fun and what's just kind of fluff. And so you kind of put that fluff aside and like you guard that nap. And so I can appreciate that. I think the only bad part about a nap is like when something or someone wakes you up before the Lord ordains for you to wake up. You know, that's like, it's like the worst thing ever. Um, like when you naturally don't wake up from a nap, it's almost like not worth taking the nap. Like it just, it sets you back for the whole day. Uh, and you wake up sometimes from that nap, you feel, you feel like, like it wasn't very restful. You know what I mean? Uh, and like the nap was promising something, but it never quite fulfilled its promise. Uh, that, that's a similar truth that we're going to see tonight in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, this idea of rest, just rest, finding rest, it's, it's a major theme. Uh, the Jews thought that they would receive uh, this rest once they entered into the physical promised land. So you guys went over that last week at the end of chapter 3, where you see Joshua leading um, the Israelites into this promised land of Israel. But what the book of Hebrews is going to argue is, is that it's possible to enter into this rest, like this physical promised land, but not truly find rest. Uh, and that might sound a bit confusing. Like, how do you enter into rest but not have rest? Well, hopefully after we exposit chapter 4, which is where we are tonight, then this will all make perfect sense. So if you brought your Bible, look to Hebrews chapter 4. We're looking at verses 1 through 13 tonight. Hebrews 4, verse 1 says this. Therefore, and I would just encourage you, anytime you see a therefore, you know this is not a new thought. He's building off of what was said in chapter 3 from last week. So therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but
but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we know that you are the one that we will stand before one day and give an account. Lord, we're reminded from this passage that nothing we do is hidden from you. You see all things. You know all things. You see through all of our intentions. You know who's here tonight for um, false motives, those who are already checked out. You know everything. Nothing is hidden from your sight. So we pray that your word tonight would just uh, do as it promises to do, that you would discern us, that you would uh, pierce that you would expose all the things that we're hiding right now, Lord, that need to be brought out into the light. So, Lord, I pray that you give us uh, ears to hear from you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So if, you, if you've been coming, we've been walking through Hebrews on Tuesday night, and um, the last few weeks you've heard that Jesus is greater than Moses. Uh, the author, he, he begins this argument in chapter 3. He carries it into this chapter in chapter 4. If you're going to do like a Mount Rushmore of all the Old Testament kind of heroes, Moses, I would say, I would argue that he would be one of those four figures on Mount Rushmore. M- many would even argue that, that it'd be Moses would be like this key main figure in the Old Testament. And so Hebrews is arguing that Jesus is far superior to Moses. Moses was given this task by God of leading the Hebrews from Egypt out of slavery and into this promised land. So this physical land of Egypt, God had Moses to lead them to this land of rest. But because of Moses' disobedience, God did not allow him nor most of the other Israelites who left Egypt on that night enter into this land. So Moses, he he died on the outside looking in. He never really got to see that. While his successor Joshua, Joshua was the one who led Israel into their new land. So when the Bible talks about rest, it is talking a lot more than just taking a really good nap. Back in chapter 3, we saw how entering into rest in the Old Testament pointed um, to the people of Israel entered to this promised land. It was called this place of rest. Um, But the land of promise, it was more than just this physical land. So when we say promised land, don't think of just like Middle East Israel. It was more than that. To enter the promised land or this place of rest meant enjoying and entering God's plan of salvation and being in the very presence where God dwelt. That's what it meant. So throughout most of the Old Testament, Israel disobeyed God and did not enter God's rest. And so we see here that they were found to have fallen short. While the Jews may have had physically entered the land of Israel, they never truly entered into the spiritual rest that God had promised. It was called, it's like dangling out there, but they never really had it. We see this terrible news at the end of chapter 3, leading into chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible in front of you, just look back one verse from chapter 4 to chapter 3, the last line of chapter 3. Let me read this just so we get some context. 319 says, So we see that they were unable to enter um, because of unbelief. 
Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So notice here in verse 1 that this promise of entering his rest, look at this, it still stands. So whatever this rest was that God offered the Israelites many, 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 many years ago, don't miss it. It's still available to you today. God's inviting you into this rest. There's a warning here. We see this also in verse, verse 1. Just like the Jews who were leaving Egypt, they, they received this warning. The, the warning is there is this, there's an honest chance that some of you uh, will also not enter this new land. And so Hebrews is hard. It, there's a lot of challenges. It's, it's, it's in your face. And so the author is saying, some of you could fail to reach this promised land, just like them. So the author says, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So what is the it? Does the it refer to the land of Israel? Like we know from context that the author is not saying that if you want to find rest in your life, then you need to move to Israel. We, we know that's not what he's attempting to say. I'm pretty confident if we were just to poll the people who live in Israel right now and ask them if they have rest in their life, you know, I'm pretty confident that the majority of them would say that they live in unrest, not rest. There's always wars going on in the Israel, Middle East. What this passage is teaching us is that the ultimate rest that God had in mind was not this physical piece of land. We begin to see this in verse 3. Verse 3 says, For we who have believed, look at this, enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Referring back to Genesis 1. And again this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. So these verses remind us the message of salvation was not different uh, for those in the Old Testament. This can be confusing because sometimes people think like people in the Old Testament, they were saved um, by their obedience. That's how they were saved in the Old Testament, by being obedient. Then we hear like the New Testament, you're saved by faith in Jesus. Even a verse like verse 6 can muddy the waters a bit. Look at verse 6. Since, therefore, it remains for some to enter it. Okay, that's good news. So some are getting in. And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day today, saying through David, so long afterward. And the words already quoted today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So we see verse 6 is kind of tricky because it says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and for those who formerly received the good news, failed to enter because of disobedience. So it seems like people from the Old Testament, they were judged by being obedient or disobedient. If they weren't obedient, then they weren't allowed 
dinner in. But we can't isolate verse 6 from like truth of verse 3. Look back at verse 3. For we who have believed entered that rest, and he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So do we enter by belief, by faith, or do we enter by being obedient? Faith or obedience? My answer would be yes. Salvation has always been by faith. Righteousness was granted to Abraham because he believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Both the Old Testament and New Testament teach salvation is by faith. Salvation is not found in your obedience nor your heritage. This is what the book of Galatians is arguing. Galatians is saying just because you are a Jew by birth does not guarantee that you are truly a child of God. Or we could say just because your mom and dad grew up in church, maybe your dad's a pastor, doesn't mean that you're a Christian. So it's not because of your heritage, it's by faith. But it's also true that God only allows perfection into his kingdom. So obedience does matter. You are saved by works. But you're not saved by your good works or by your perfect obedience but by the works of Christ. See, this is the good news. See, by putting your faith in Jesus, his works, his perfect obedience, that obedience is now transferred to your account. So you have been credited his righteousness. You go from being in debt. You all know what debt is, right? Kind of nodding. Yeah. So you go from being in debt to now being rich. So, you know, all the talk right now is all, you know, the student loan, payoff loans. Um, all that would do is, like, pay off, and, and for most of you, that's not going to pay off your debt, is it? Uh, it, it, would, it would help. But let's just say it pays off all your debt. That's not the full gospel. Christ isn't just paying off your debt. Yes, he does do that. But what he does, he, he credits your account. He, he credits, like he lavishes upon you his grace, his mercy, his, his, his righteousness. So you go from being in debt to being paid off to now being filthy rich. That's the good news of the gospel. So being saved by the works of Jesus and, and, and not your works is the logic found in verse 8. Verse 8 says, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So if you could pay off your debt to God, why would we need another day? But because no one can do that, Jesus had to come. So not only is Jesus a greater Moses, because Moses could not lead them into this Rest. Joshua couldn't do that. You can't lead yourself into that rest. Only Jesus can. Jesus is also this greater Joshua. Joshua may have led the Hebrews to this physical land of rest, but he did not lead them into this ultimate rest that God had in mind. The ultimate rest could only be achieved by another Joshua. What's cool is 
Jesus' name, it's the Greek version of the Hebrew Joshua. So Joshua means to save. And to think Jesus' name literally means to save. So this new Joshua would come many years later to deliver his people and give them ultimate rest. You cannot do that for yourself. You can do all the work you can, get all the good grades. You will not give yourself rest. No nap will do that. No grade, no job, no boy, no girl will ever give you that rest. You're always going to have this turmoil, this angst about you. You're never going to be satisfied. Jesus gives us this rest. This rest, this promised land, is not entered by foot. It's entered only by faith. And for those that trust that Jesus took their punishment from God, we see their hope in verse 9. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Forever has entered God's rest, has also entered from his works as God did from this. Let us therefore strive not to enter that rest so that no one may... Um, or let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Verse 10 informs us that, that we rest from our works and enter God's rest when we trust Christ. That's it. We no longer have to live our lives trying to prove our righteousness, not before God, not before anyone else. Instead, we rest from that labor because Christ has already proved that righteousness on our behalf. So we, we trust in what he's done. We trust in the works of Christ. We rest from trusting in our own. It's exhausting trying to be good enough. We rest in Christ's work, not our own. But just as those Israelites faced trials, verse 11 shows us that our journey is going to be a similar journey. Verse 11 says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. That word strive, we don't really like that word so much. It's, it sounds like there's like effort. Uh, tonight, I, um, our Huntington softball girls, they, they were just terrible tonight. Let me just be honest. I, 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 don't, care if, I don't care if we win. Um, uh, we're, we're really bad. Um, and I don't care if we win, but there's two things. I, I tell the girls, like, there's two things that I care that you show me every, every game. Um, one is attitude, and two is effort. Like, like I, I don't care if you strike out. I just want to see you swing. Show me effort. Um, I don't care if you miss a ball, but at least try to go get the ball. Um, but I had girls tonight, and maybe think back to your days of playing, you know, you know maybe youth sports. I have girls. This has never happened. I've coached baseball and softball for uh, about 10 years now. I've never had a kid until this, this season say, can I sit out this inning? I've never had a kid ever say, it's usually, hey, can I, can I pitch? Can I catch? Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I? They want to set out. I've never, and I'm like, you don't show me any effort. And, 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 and so strive, strive takes effort. It's work. It's hard. It shows us that this journey that we're on is not going to be easy. If we're going to make it through this desert that we're in right now, so this is kind of this picture, is we're all in this wilderness season right now. Just as the, the Israelites spent 40 years wandering through this wilderness to get to the promised land, that's what your life is. Scriptures 
using this as a metaphor for your life, it's this wilderness. This is not our home, okay? This is why there's always this longing for something else out there. This is not going to satisfy you. And, and so through this, we're going to face trials just as the Israelites faced through their journey. So as we're going through this journey, we've got to strive. We can't stop. We can't quit because there is a promised land waiting for us. That's what Hebrews is arguing. So what has God left us with to help us to strive, to persevere? How do we make sure that we're not like the Israelites who were left out of this ultimate rest? I mean, don't you want to finish this race? It's one of the saddest things. Some of you can, like, see faces right now when I talk about this, of, like, people you grew up going to youth group with or maybe even in Campus Collective over the years. And, like, you look around, they're just not walking anymore. It's so hard to see that. Like, they just quit. Like, you're like, don't stop. There's something so much better waiting. So how do we, like, make sure we don't just, like, quit? What, what has God left us with? Well, the author of Hebrews transitions now to the answer. Look at verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Notice how, like, the word of God here is it's personified. Like, it's not saying it, but it's saying him. Verse 12 highlights this. There's another theme here. We talked about rest. Another theme found in the book of Hebrews is the word of God. Remember back to how this letter began in chapter 1? Remember this? This is such an important um, verse. Listen to this introduction in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, or, or just flip back. A page or two. It says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So in the Old Testament, people didn't have like a Bible like you have in your hands. Like, I think we don't realize the grace and kindness that God has given to us, that you have his word right in your lap. Where, you, you know, years ago in the Old Testament, you had a prophet. God would speak to a prophet, and then the prophet would speak to the people. So long ago, many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, which is where we are now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, to whom he also created the world. And, and then in chapter 3, uh, the author reminds us um, how God spoke to the people in Israel in Psalm 95. Psalm 95 shows how God spoke to his people in the desert, but they did not listen to his word. So now the word of God is mentioned again. We see that the word of God is living. Now, what does that mean? Can you kill your Bible? You know, how does it mean that the word of God is living? It means that a living person is revealed in it. Christ is alive today. He's, he's not still in the tomb since God's word is empowered by the Holy Spirit, when we encounter the word, we encounter God. It is through God's word that we meet him, learn from him, 
and have fellowship with him. So some of you, you say, like, I just want to know God better. Open up your word. This is how you get to know God better. So it's not just living, but we see it's also active. The, the Greek word for active here is energes, which is where we get the English word energy. One author says this. He says, the word of God is energetic. It's powerful. It's mighty. It doesn't just say things. It does things. The word of God is busy working, changing, building, convicting, encouraging, exposing, rebuking, giving light and wisdom, carving out the paths of our lives, and showing us the truth of God. It's living. It's active. I mean, think about all the times in Scripture where we see the word of God living and active. I think about the very beginning, Genesis 1. How does everything come into being? And God said, and it happened. And God said, and it happened. God spoke everything into existence. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he spoke God's word. He spoke God's word to rebuke and push back the lies of Satan. Oh, on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the book of John. The book of John, a few weeks ago, we heard about the story of Lazarus. It was God's words that raised Lazarus from, uh, from the grave. Jesus calmed the raging sea simply by saying, be still. And it listened. So the word of God is living, it's active. Then we see the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing through the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. This is why some people refer to the Bible as, as being their sword. It's this idea that the word of God is designed to cut. It's a two-edged sword. It's made to penetrate the hardest substance on the entire planet. You know what that is? The human heart. Jeremiah 17, 1 says this about the heart. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. So here we see the sins of Judah being engraved on the tablet of their heart. And notice what object is required here to engrave their heart. Do you see that? A diamond point. A diamond is it's, you know, one of the hardest substances. This world, like, like it's going to be what you would need to carve into something that's already hard. Like this, this is metal. I couldn't just take a pencil and scratch into this. I would need something like a diamond. The diamond is only needed because their heart is so hard. The only thing sharp enough to penetrate the hardened heart is God's word. It pierces to the vision of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow. It's like a surgeon's knife. It cuts off the infected areas. Is it painful? Yes. You've had surgery before? It hurts. But is it necessary? Is it a good thing? Absolutely. And once the Word of God penetrates the hardened heart, notice what it does next. It discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from a sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. 
See, the Bible exposes who we really are. The Word of God is not just a place where we learn more about God. The Word of God is also a way to get to know yourself. It's like a mirror. It's exposing all of the flaws you have in your life. When you read the Bible and let it penetrate your heart, you will see things about yourself that you never saw before. You will see your real intentions, your real motives, and your real character. Sometimes we try to hide things. You know, we try to hide who we really are from each other. Sometimes we even try to hide those things from God. But verse 13 tells us that no creature is hidden from his sight. The word of God will show you who you really are and what your real, what your real problems are. And then notice that, that you're exposed to him whom we must give an account. Every book that you have is ready for you to read, but notice that this book is ready to read you. This book exposes your true self. And so why does that matter? It matters because if you don't deal with those things in your heart, then you might find yourself just like the Israelites, doubting, disbelieving, and turning away from God. God's word does surgery on your soul in order to prevent you from falling away and losing the rest that God has promised to you. Invite the band to come. Let's, let's pray. God, you're so good and kind to give us your word. Lord, I pray that we would uh, allow your word to expose our heart so we can confess any sin right now. We want to make sure that we enter into your rest. So, Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. Lord, may I just do what you promise for it to do. Cut away whatever it needs to cut away so we can be more like Christ. We pray all of this in his name. Amen.